Welcome to In Context. This is Michael Easley, your host. And trying to figure out how to introduce guests is always a puzzle and art form. Let me tell you a story about our guest today, Steve Bartlett. I am in uh, Dallas, Texas. I'm going to seminary. There was a public radio station, I think it was WRR, and during the week it broadcast wonderful classical music. So this is before streaming, before all the technology. So I would have that on in a nice volume when I studied through seminary. On Wednesdays, there would be this abrupt change in programming, and they would have the Dallas City Council live. Not to be too indelicate, but it was like a verbal food fight on the air. And it was probably the best entertainment in Dallas, Texas. And that was uh, Steve Bartlett as mayor trying to corral, facilitate men and women of very different political perspectives. But I would do terrible injustice to explain Steve Bartlett. So I'm going to do it this way. Steve, when did you first decide you were going to run for political office? How old were you? Where were you? When did you run? What office? Well, actually, I know fairly fairly precisely, but first I should say to your listeners that I hope they appreciate that they get to share with the best, the finest, the most loving and kind senior pastor of the entire country. <laughs> we miss you with Emmanuel, and I need to, you to come visit Austin Oaks in Austin. Uh, so Michael Easley is, in fact, the best of all the best, uh, and I can confirm that from everyone who's ever heard you. You and five other people, but I'll take it. Thanks. <laughs> So I was actually in the sixth grade when I made a discovery. Get out. A lot of discoveries are made when you're young by a teacher. And this teacher noticed that I was uh, social sciences. She noticed that I was interested in the news. It wasn't politics at the time, but it was the news. And the news is all awful, a creature of politics. And so she asked me what magazines I read. And I said, I was living on a farm, a, a little dirt farm outside of Lockhart, Texas. And we had uh, 15 acres. And so I said, well, I'll read the Farm Journal. Boy's Life, with the Boy Scout magazine, and Reader's Digest. And she said, well, I'll bring you every week, I'll bring you a week-old copy of Newsweek, and you can read it, just understand it's a week old. And so I started reading it cover to cover, and I made two discoveries. One is that all that happens in America and the world, for that matter, but America is colored by the news stories, the political systems that decide what's going to happen, whether we're going to have highways, whether we're going to have foreign market roads, what the taxes are going to be, everything. And those issues are decided by who gets elected to office, and that's a political choice. And so I said, well, I want to be one of those. When I went to the ninth grade, made the second discovery, and that we moved to Dallas, the big city of Dallas. And I discovered that politics is decided by people who get involved. It's not a spectator sport. If you get involved, you help to decide who gets elected, and who gets elected decides what the laws are, and the laws decide whether we're going to have a good life or a bad life. And so in ninth grade, I, I started a young Republican club and was off to the races ever since. Let's back up just a little bit, because I have said for years, Steve, that many Americans don't understand the role policy plays in our life. We look at a party, maybe we vote as a block, maybe we like a particular candidate, what he or she is saying, but policy is what matters. It is policy, and the policy is set by the people who get elected to office, and the people who get elected to office are decided by you and me and our neighbors and friends. It's fairly easy to enter. It's amazing how quickly you can start to actually change the the outcome of political. Hmm. You can't change the whole world, but you can change it kind of one one vote at a time. 
the political system is probably decided by, you know, 5% of the voters that decide to get involved and the rest vote. And voting is good, but hosting a neighborhood coffee for the candidates in your home, having a yard sign, going to a town hall and expressing your views, and just being knowledgeable about what are the issues and what ought to be done is, is what really governs. Your first race? Well, it was to be president of the Dallas County High School Young Republican Federation. Thank you very much. We had 1,200 members. Wow. Yeah, 1,200. 1964, I was part of the Goldwater Kids, Goldwater Revolution. I lived on the wrong side of the river, you know, Dallas then and now. Unfortunately, not as much now, but was quite a segregated city by income and by race. And I was on the and I was on the downside of that of that income divide by the river. But I had the largest young Republican club in the city. Why? Because I went down and asked them, signed them up. Okay. So I then got elected to the president of the, of the Dallas County Young Republicans and was off the races. After that, I was made state chairman a couple of years later. And after that, I came back and was the president of the Republican Men's Club. And then I ran for the city council. The way I ran for the city council, I'd been active in both city hall politics and Republican politics simultaneously. And a local councilwoman resigned to be head of the hmm. EPA. And so I got to looking around with my friends and we decided to recruit a candidate to replace her. We had some things that we wanted to improve at City Hall. And so I went to several candidates and asked them to run for office. And they looked at me like I had three heads. One guy told me he couldn't, he couldn't run for the Dallas City Council because he had promised one of his family members to take her to Europe for the summer or something like that. And I said, well, how unpatriotic is that? <laughs> So I'm griping about it. All this happened in the space of five days. So I'm griping about it. We'd gone through five candidates and got no from all of them. Wow. So I'm at the breakfast table, uh, grousing about where the patriots in this city. I'm all of 29 years old. And suddenly this hand comes from the other side of the newspaper. And it's my wife's hand. And it just crushes the newspaper and said, well, if you're so smart and you care about it so much, why don't you go out and run yourself? I said, okay, I will. I can hear Gil saying that. <laughs> <laughs> I announced them that day and invited all of my friends to come to my house for the announcement party, and 200 of them showed up. Wow. She didn't learn about it until 4 o'clock that afternoon. No, no. That's, that's perfect. Anyway, so I ran for the city council, was widely told that I didn't have a chance, but uh, I won with a runoff. And, you know, it's got kind of to present the issues, hold yourself out well, hold yourself out. I was always nice, still am. So nice yeah, about it. You Somebody are. disagree. I'd say, well, tell me about your view, and okay, let me think about that, but here's, if you want my view, here it is, and if, if you don't, it's okay. And so I went on the city council as a young whippersnapper. Fortunately, my birthday was during that campaign, so by the time I got there, I was 30 years old, which is a far more respectable age to be on the Dallas City Council. You ran for Con Congress. I were Congress first. first, then mayor later. Yeah, we want to get to that. So you were how many terms in Congress? I was four terms. I was in four my terms. left to be mayor. So it was after I, I discovered that many of the issues that were we would try to resolve around the Dallas City Council chambers, not all of them, but many of them, they were colored by what was happening nationally, by the national politics. And so I said, OK, I want part of that. By this time, Ronald Reagan had gotten elected president, so I was part of his revolution. Gail and I spent 21 months campaigning for Congress. Uh, we had our, our district was changed six times from the time Goodness. we started and we ended. The district was two-thirds different from where I got elected than what I'd been campaigning. Had 11 opponents from start to finish. It was a high-velocity campaign. When people get elected to Congress, they don't get elected by defeating an incumbent, typically. It's an open seat. So this was an open seat. It was a high-velocity, but I will say that 
can't say this about my opponents, but I never once said an unkind word about any of my opponents, either publicly or privately. I can't say the same about Gail, by the way. I, I don't vouch for that. <laughs> she sometimes had a couple of comments. <laughs> well, Sydney, I love about Gail is what you see is what you get with Gail. She's not going to dance around or be, you know, diplomatic. That's why I love her so much. I fail all my diplomacy courses as well. At what point during your time as a U.S. congressman do you say, I want to go back and be mayor? Because this seems like a reverse way most people might think about political office. First comment about my time in Congress, I decided, remember, I was I was Please. running yeah. politics matter by electing people that make policy, but the people who make policy isn't everybody in Congress. So it's the old 80-20 rule. So I decided I wanted to be a part of that 20% that actually wrote the laws. And so I decided early on that I was going to actually pass good laws and defeat bad laws. I wrote, it's not especially well known because, you know, it's you know, a profit in your own home. I wrote and passed into law 18 different pieces of legislation that changed lives. The Americans with Disabilities Act, plus about five other disability inclusion laws. The FHA mortgage law that freed that up so yeah. that people could get a mortgage. Uh, of all things, the East Texas Wilderness Act, which created the only wilderness designation in, in Texas outside of the desert out in New Mexico. So what I did was I went to senior members of Congress when I got there and I was young, 34 years old which by congressional standards is quite young. And I said, if you were in my shoes, what would you do? And about half of them says, just get your newsletters out in every town halls and get reelected and wait until you have seniority like me, and then you can do something. The other half, though, said, you can do anything you want to. Just set out to do it. So the rules that they told me I followed was that to get there early and stay late, know more about the subject than anyone else, follow the rules, including the rules, and this was important, of civility and courtesy, and never give up. And as a result, I was able to actually change lives, if you will. To take a little sidebar, that civility campaigning without being negative seems to be pretty much gone. Am I wrong? You're right, unfortunately. And it's, it's one of the things I get involved in now. We've talked about no, no labels. Somehow our system has just kind of gotten broken and it's got up to the American people to get it back. And one of the ways it's broken is the sense that Hooray for me and heck with you, that anger, that culture wars. You're not on my team, and so therefore you're evil, and my job is to destroy you. And that happens on both sides. But when I was there, that isn't what happened typically. You figure things out on how to approve some part of, the, of American life and do it. Now it's more one party decides in their caucus what to do, and then they have a big vote. It's not very good. Little known fact, people don't appreciate the Obamacare. Much of what is wrong with Obamacare was because it didn't go through the process. There was a yeah. change of majority in the Senate at the time. And so the result is two things. One is the Republicans checked out, bless their hearts. They just decided not to participate. And so that left all of the negotiations had to happen only within the Democratic Party. And then there was never a proper conference committee. So the House and the Senate would get together and correct the mistakes that were well known in the bill. And so the, those mistakes became law. When I was in Congress, that's not the way it worked. You'd have a conference committee. I was on a conference committee. I, I was on one that lasted for six weeks. We started at four o'clock every afternoon and would work until two or three in the morning, ironing out the differences. Now, that was an exception, but you're always ironing out the differences because that's the only way you can pass a law because you, you find solutions. You hear what the other person's saying, and then you say, okay, I can accommodate part of that, but here's what I'd 
think is right also. So the civility is missing, but also the sense of James Madison's balance of powers of considering all views. Well, we're going to talk about no labels, but before we get there, I was thinking of your comment about civility and working through committees and conferences. Tip O'Neill and Reagan had a very interesting relationship. And that's one that seems to be lost on our current context. And it filtered down through everybody in the Congress. Now, there were knockdown, drag out, fight. But that means that when you get close to an agreement, if you don't have an agreement, then you take it to the House floor and you vote it. The first amendment that I passed that actually became law was about, I was about three, three months old. I was in a floor fight for eight hours. Wow. I controlled the time and the floor, and we had an old-fashioned debate about the merits of it. And I won, much to the surprise of the Democrats who were in the majority at the time. And they were so mad about it, but they, they used a parliamentary procedure to call it back up and re-vote it because they just couldn't believe that I had won. And so I saw it coming, and I went to, I had lost, I think, like five members of the Republican Party that voted against my amendment, and I knew that the Democrats would be able to twist enough arms to change at least five. And so I went to, to these five and said, look, I know you don't agree with me, but if they change theirs, wouldn't you throw me a break and change yours? And they'd say, sure. It was a ferocious battle, but it was a battle based on civility. I remember at, in that battle, actually, there was a congressman from Massachusetts named Eddie Boland. And Eddie Boland was an icon of the Congress. He was far more admired than Tip O'Neill. He had been there for 20 years, and he was just a, a class act. It was a really clash of philosophies on the floor. At the end of the debate, after I had won, he walked over to my micro he, Democrat. He walked over from the Democratic side to my microphone, held out his hand, shook it, and said, Mr. Bartlett, you hold yourself out well. Congratulations. And that was it. Anyway. Wow. So, yeah, more than civility, it was civility with the purpose of changing public policy. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about your time as mayor, because, again, it's a little unusual, correct, as a member of Congress and go back to any city and run for mayor. It is. It's not as unusual as you would think for big cities, because okay. in a big city like Dallas, Dallas-Fort Worth, you have five to seven congressmen. Chicago is the same. New York's the same. L.A. is the same. You have five congressmen for that city, then one mayor. And so the one mayor gets a lot more attention. So in, in that sense, for a big city, it's not, it's not that unusual. So what caused it is, and I hope none of your viewers except for you may know this, Dallas had gone through really hard times in the late 80s, early 90s. Dallas missed the civil rights movement. City fathers would accommodate just enough to, to make sure that things were, were not difficult, but not actually share you know, power or economy or desegregate or anything like that. It all fell apart when the real estate market crashed. So a couple of examples, and Dallas was not well-governed. When I came in as mayor, and this is why I ran, which is your question, is Dallas was a mess. The month I got elected, we went back and checked it. Dallas had had an increase in violent crime every single month for 20 years in every category. Murder, rape, robbery, and aggravated assault. Every single month. And the Dallas bureaucracy was fine with that. They said, well, nothing we can do about that. That's just crime, right? Well, we turned it around with a lot of help, turned it around in five months and began to decrease crime in all four categories every month, beginning in five months and every month thereafter while I was mayor and a little bit beyond. Dallas had lost 100,000 jobs in downtown Dallas alone in 10 years. 
and not had a single new employer move to downtown in 10 years. Wow. And then, of course, the city council, you know, was kind of at war with itself. I remember I went to the last council meeting before I came as mayor, just watched it from the, from the balcony to see what it looked like. One of the council members got so angry that he stood up and picked up his, he was sitting on a big metal stool and threw it at the rest of the council. So when I came, I said, oh boy, I got a problem. First thing I did was I, I told the city manager to get rid of that stool because I think you want to get, well, get hit by a steel stool and have him sit in a chair. And then I immediately elected him as mayor pro tem. That's smart. And he's sitting there next to me and he leans over and whispers after the election. He says, Mayor, he said, uh, you know who I am, right? I said, yeah, hell, I know who you are. He said, and you know what I do? I said, yes, I do. He said, why'd you make me mayor pro tem? I said, you don't have as far to throw a chair. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was something, and I won't name names, but there were some characters on that thing that I think they just lived for the microphone and yelling and screaming. So but we got a lot done and we changed. Well, you've always kept your cool as, as a, you know, we lived in the Dallas Fort Worth area for 13 years and I was always impressed. I didn't know you at the time. And I thought, man, that guy does not lose his temper. He doesn't yell. He doesn't scream back because. Some of those folks were pretty unhinged. And so anyway, um, God bless them. God just bless got, them. I just thought of it as they're, they're just expressing their First Amendment rights. <laughs> Which is not okay anymore, but we'll get to that maybe. Let's talk about this no labels thing. I, I saw this a few months back and I went, okay, Atros Pro, here we go again. Yeah. First of all, define no labels for folks that maybe haven't heard about it. And then why is Steve Bartlett? into it, supporting it, interested in it, behind it? I'm a lifetime Republican, although I'm also an ever-trumper, okay, from the beginning. My view is that we have reached an impasse in our country, again, with the culture wars of, of red team versus blue team, of which everybody on my team is perfect and everybody on your team is evil and we got to destroy you, and it goes back and forth. And that is largely caused by the way the elections happen, which is the use of primaries, and primaries have become that kind of that cauldron of minority rules. So 30% at most of the voters altogether control 70% of the primary in both the Democratic and Republican primary. And the result of that is that 30% ends up electing the most extreme of their tribe, the ones that can have the cleverest, or the shoutest, the, the harshest rhetoric. And then the American people, as is likely to happen in 2024, are faced with the choice, again, of an election between two, pardon me, quite unqualified and negative candidates for president. If you look at all the polls, 70% of the American people don't want to vote for either Joe Biden or Donald Trump, and yet they're going to be forced to choose from the worst choices. I don't want to overstate it, but you could almost do a random selection of 300 million Americans and come up with better, better than that, okay? So the only way to change it, I think, is to have a third choice that the American people can vote for. And it's not a Ross Perot, but more of a centrist, someone with a message, but of a centrist that says, okay, this party will, if the president is elected, will solve problems, immigration, taxes, health care, education, debt and deficit, you name it, and will solve it by passing good laws. And the way you do it is no labels will nominate, assuming that Trump and, and Biden are still the nominees, will nominate a third choice. You mentioned earlier a number of 5% basically decide the election. Right. I've often said three because typically, correct me if I'm wrong, 
Democrats vote in a unilateral block, Republicans may or may not, and this whole independent, undecided voter thing is what we hear about over and over and over again. You mentioned 80-20. That's being healthy, right? It's 90-10 sometimes. So if that's the case, as a person who loves the country and cares about my children and grandchildren and all the things you mentioned, healthcare and the economy and civility and and immigration and inflation, we can go on all day. I look at the slate and I go, they're going to vote as a block. They're going to vote as a block. Let's just say all things being perfect and equal, this three to 5% votes for a new thing. How will they get anything done, Steve? Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's the three to 5% that are active, but the voters then is right now it's about 40% in the middle of the voters are independent and then 30% Republican and 30% Democrat. That's kind of roughly the way it works out. Well, if you have all the Republicans vote Republican, all the Democrats vote Democrat, that leaves 40%. Well, how do you win a presidential election? You don't win it with the popular vote. You win it by the majority of the electoral vote. Now, here's the big rule, the big, the big thing in the Constitution, and that is the 40%, even 38% of the vote in any state wins 100% of the electors. So if 38% of Texans or Tennesseans vote for no labels candidate, that candidate gets 100% of the electoral votes. Okay, let me stop you because a lot of people, and we saw this in the last two elections, they want to abolish the Electoral College. And I remember years ago learning, Electoral College is brilliant. It's brilliant because apart from Electoral College is a safety valve, it would simply be New York, L.A., Dallas, Fort Worth. I mean, you can tell me Atlanta, these high population cities would be a basically a majority vote would elect a candidate. So help folks understand, Steve, why is this electoral college so key to a fair election? If we start to nominate other than just the two parties, the electoral puts a little leavening on it and broadens it out. So the, our family fathers were afraid of king mob, they call yep. it. If you have a pure popular election, well, then the mob rules. And if the mob gets 51%, they win. In this case, if you have three candidates on the ballot in Tennessee or in Texas, and one of them gets 38%, the other two get 30%, well, that 38% wins. It also forces the candidates to kind of move towards the middle. And then the electors then, they cast a vote for who won, leaning a plurality in their state. So it creates a leveling effect that sort of forces candidates to the middle. It also allows you to choose a better candidate. Of all of the candidates that you could think of in the country as a whole that are mentioned as for Congress, whether it's, you know, even Gavin Newsom, you know, on the Democratic side, or Chris Christie or Nikki Haley, they'd make far better presidents than Joe Biden or Donald Trump. And then if you expand it out to the Joe Manchins of the world and the uh, Larry Hogan's of the world and the Chris Sununes of the world who are more independent, then you get a far superior president and somebody you can govern. It has worked one time, you know, and that is in 1860, we forget. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln was elected with this plurality system. There were four candidates on the ballot, and he won a plurality in, in, in the electoral votes. It's hard for, A, we don't know our history, and this has been one of the frustrations I've had after leaving Nova, D.C., where other places we've lived. People have no understanding of history. It's only the here and now. And unfortunately, whether it's whatever news outlet people consume, it's clickbait, it's pop culture politics. That's why I talked about 
policy, because I've always been a policy wonk. Who's going to write a policy? Who has a chance of getting policy passed? Because theoretically, then, that's where laws are made, legislation is enacted. Help a person understand. They go, you know, I've always been a Democrat. I've always been a Republican. And then I want to ask you the question about what Christians unilaterally, well, they tended to be pro-family, pro-life. That's changed now. They seem to be social justice. Maybe there's some sustainability people in there. But it's a different animal, Steve. On the politics of it, it's a new era. You know, social media has changed everything. Yes. So you communicate for the first time in American history. You can communicate instantaneously with everybody in America. And so that allows a co- more of a conversation to happen. Social media is being used against us by people tuning in to what they want to hear, and they only get messages that they want to hear. But that's starting to break through. And if no labels nominates a candidate that then talks with us with social media, then the American people will start to say, well, that's a good idea. Maybe we should solve the immigration problem. Maybe we should solve the deficit problem. Maybe we should have a national conversation about what to do about climate change, as opposed to this shouting of M2 or not, M2 or not. I think no labels helps to open up the conversation, but it also results in a better candidate being president in an election because you get a more of a centrist. With no labels, the centrist would govern from the middle. That is to say, the most common name is usually Joe Manchin that's discussed, who's right in the middle, but there are several others. He would have as a vice president somebody from the other party and would govern from a, okay, here are the six big issues. How can we solve them? And let's solve them. Let's pass a law, immigration or taxes or whatever it is, to actually resolve the the problems. And that's the way it's supposed to work. That was what James Madison and and the founding fathers had in mind. But when you have showmen, show women, who commandeer all the media messages, you mentioned social media. Cindy and I talked endlessly about the truncation of information is as dangerous as the spread of information. Because sure, as you said, you can communicate globally very quickly, but it's a short message and there's no context. There's no understanding of the historical setting of that. I mean, it almost feels like we're giving people candy as opposed to a healthy meal when it comes to what we're telling them about policy and politicians. It's a sugar high. And as with sugar, it gets people's emotions all up. And so then people are thinking with their emotions and their anger, and the social media then reflects that, but it also fuels it. So, you know, the American people have their job to do too, which is to start to listen to other views. There are other social media outlets that people can find if you look for them to find different aspects of the different views. There's actually one that's called Nice News, which is a daily input. And and so they just send you like three or four stories that were nice news today. Something happened nice. (laughs) Do they have puppies and cats in the pictures? Well, they actually Uh, had the policy policy nice. It's not in Philadelphia. Maybe, no, that's a bad joke. Oh. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Let's talk about the Christian, because when you and I were younger, it was pro-life and pro-family and, you know, faith, family, and freedom. We heard over and over. Those don't mean what they meant in the 80s, right? And so now we've got a very complicated, quote, Christian block. Again, you're the expert, not me. It seems they're more divided and vitriolic toward each other than ever in my lifetime. It breaks my heart as a Christian to see Christianity being used as a cudgel to hurt people. It really breaks my heart. My Bible verse, my sort of guiding, everybody has one. Jesus asked 
Peter on the morning of the, the breakfast in John 21, do you love me? And Peter said, of course I do. Why do you ask? <laughs> and Jesus said, well, then feed my sheep yeah. and tend my lambs and feed my sheep. And I think that's what Jesus is asking us to do today. You know, I'm be theological for a minute. He didn't make it as a commandment. The commandments were up in Matthew. It's love God and love your neighbor. He just made it as a, if you love me, then feed my sheep. And I think that's what Christians are called upon to do. If we love him, we should feed his sheep. One way to feed his sheep is to change laws so that young families can adopt a foster child, getting rid of the red tape, and support that child and grow that child up into a good young adult. Okay? Well, there are laws that stand in the way of that. The only way to change that is to change that. And that's a small example, but here's a classic one that's often kind of red versus blue. There's a provision in the tax law called the Child Tax Credit that actually was written by Mitt Romney, the Republican senator, but it was adopted by the Democrats, fine, and they made it temporary. And that provides for a $3,000 per year tax credit for a young family that has a child, okay? $3,000 per year. So some of the Republicans say, well, that's just a big giveaway. Well, it's not a giveaway. We give tax credits for all kinds of stuff, okay? And we want families to have children and be able to support them in a healthy way. So a $3,000 extra to help to support a family makes perfect sense once you get it out of the political context. It's my hope the Christians become more discerning on what they really want. If we are, I'm pro-life, as are you, if we want to save babies, well, then we should have more birth control available. We should have more ability to raise young children when you do have young children. We should have better maternal health. I saw a statistic the other day that the fatality rate of maternal deaths has increased threefold in the last 20 years in America. In America, You know, one of the interesting things during this last two election cycles, I mean, I've lost Christian friends, brothers for decades, but there were certain issues that were, they were bridged too far for me. And I was like, how can you sacrifice this for this euphemistic, we're going to do better with immigration or whatever, going, this is nonsensical. It's not even common sense. You know, you have to have some type of immigration reform, control your borders, et cetera. Oh, that's not Christian. I'm going, how do you even get there? So that was one of a four or five top issues. And I know you're far more well-versed than me, but what struck me was the incalcitrance and the lack of history, I go back to that, the lack of a historical understanding. America is the most benefactor country in the world. They've given away more to any country, a country group, developing nations than anyone in the world. And the Christian church, as you well know, has been one of the leading contributors to hospitals and women's centers and health around the world. I mean, you look at the ministries that have poured millions of dollars into Africa or Sudan, Vietnam, go down the list, but they kind of lose their mind when the election cycle comes up and go, well, social justice is more important than pro-life. We've lost the pro-life issue. And I'm like, these are incongruous issues, but you, you know, I'm prattling again, but this is where I traffic, Steve, and you can't have a civil conversation. Let's, let's line these issues up one at a time because it is so emotional. And the other piece is we all know somebody who... Right. And then you go, well, if you're pro-life, then you should be anti-capital punishment. And I go, these are eggs and sausages. They're in the same universe. But that's where this 
if you're pro-life, as you and I are, you should want to save babies. I mean, uh, it would but seem. <laughs> it, but it, it is Nikki Haley said on the on the debate. She said, "Well, that's good. That's true." She said, "I'm pro-life. I want to save babies." But the but, only way to save babies is to change the law. It's not possible, the voting-wise, to pass a law that's going to be exactly the way I want it. So why don't we take these five things that will actually save lives? It won't save all the lives I want to, but it'll save some lives. I will say, I, I know other people have told me that they've lost friends over the political arguments and such. I, I haven't. I, it's, well, it's, you're a better man than me. So I, yeah. Gary, I've spoken, but I'm able to. <laughs> I'll say, well, what do you think about that? <laughs> it's just, it's uh, I've had I've had to discontinue some conversations, of course. Yeah, it gets a little heated. Let's move ahead to the no labels a little bit more. So, if I'm a evangelical fundamental Bible believing, you know, crazy Bible thumper that's always voted red, and if I am a, a Christian who has affections toward no capital punishment, abortion should be safe and available to people. Dobbs was a terrible decision. And I'm a card-carrying Christian who lives in a blue state. How do you talk to either of them about no labels? Do you want to solve the problems or do you want to have a good shouting match? You should start by nominating people to public office, in this case, the president, who can lead the country to solving the problems. So just start with that. And it's fairly clear that neither Joe Biden nor Donald Trump can do that. They can shout about it. They can take a hard line and say, this is what, it's got to be my way or no, or no way. But then you get no way. And so you start with electing candidates that can actually address these issues and solve the problems. That's number one. Number two, you just listen to what no labels have to say with an open mind and ask yourself the question, who would I like to have as president? Many Christians say, well, I don't really like Donald Trump, but he's the best we got, so I'm going I'm to vote for him. If he's the best we got, then we're in trouble. He's the best on the ballot, maybe. And so that's, I think, just just look at the candidates and the issues and say, what do you want to save babies? Do you want to improve society? Do you want to have have immigration? Do you want to? And if you want to do those things, you have to do them in the context of policy and politics. And I think at this point in our history, after 1860, the last time it happened, it's time to make a change. When you fast forward and think about no labels against a candidate on the ballot, and you have a no labels president and vice president. Those who are ensconced in the red and blue, are they going to have the discussion? Are they going to play ball on the House floor? Or is it going to be what we see now? Oh, yeah. It would change everything. If for no other reason for self-interest, okay? Members of Congress, first of all, they want to get reelected. But secondly, they also want to, they, they each have interest in bills that they want to pass. And so the, a president, Manchin or President Hogan, will say, okay, I'm going to, everybody stay as a Republican and Democrat. But anybody who wants, this happened, by the way, in France with Macron. He said, anybody who wants to be part of my team, you can stay in Republican or Democrat. But all you got to do is raise your hand and say, I'll be with the Biden team or with the no labels team. Okay. And then you'll get invited to the White House and we'll work on the bills together. And when we get, uh, there's, a, there's a group in Congress now of 40, no, 60, I think, members of the House who call the, the No Labels Caucus, the Problem Solvers Caucus, they tell themselves. And we'll write legislation and bring it to the House floor. And if you're for it, you vote for it. If you're against it, you vote against it. And that will work. So you use the process itself and the self-interest of people who want to accomplish something, and then you bring it to the House floor. But you, it takes a leader. You know, you can't have the president pulling pulling the country apart and expect the Congress to pull the country together. 
and what we're seeing now is, you know, red team, blue team. Red, I mean, let's just say it turned to a Trump presidency. It's going to be the same vitriol and fighting for the next four years, and they don't get much done. Let me change the subject and ask the question. I don't trust the ballot box anymore. Oh, really? I don't trust the nature of voting. I don't know that I'm going to incriminate blue or red, but there are irregularities. They've been going on forever, but it seems almost like it's baked before we begin. So then you have a large part of the population, which I guess doesn't affect electoral. They're going to fold their arms. It doesn't matter if I vote anywhere. They don't count my vote, right? Well, and then you get into some really bad stuff. Once people stop believing that their ballot is sacred, well, then they stop believing in the country. Yeah. And then that's what leads to revolution. That's what leads to civil war. And I will say, and I hate this, but I think we're actually on a path that the outcome could well it be. It could so, be. It's, I would say I've looked at the same, I've looked at the facts and the data and I've reached a different conclusion. I think our, our voting is, is control is so diverse so it's controlled in every county, in every precinct, in every state, by state laws and by the counting of it. So I, have, I don't see this massive election fraud. I was in Texas as a youngster when we did have significant voting irregularities. I was a poll watcher. It did happen. So I thought in the 50s and 60s, it was far greater than it is now. Hmm. I just don't see this pervasive voting okay. irregularities. I think we've been given... The line that it's there, and so we assume that it must be true where there's smoke, there's fire, but I don't see it. Talk to me about a national voter ID vis-a-vis -vis what we do now, and talk to me about voting early versus voting on the day of elections. I think a national ID would make it riskier because then if it's nationalized, then somebody could, could control that national, okay? Uh, whereas well, my driver's license is a fairly reliable ID, is it not? And it's state, it's state control, yeah. So, so it's written by the state. I think there are ways to do the, the voter ID that are so are better than others, but I think every state manages it pretty well. And then you get a certain diversity of ideas. I think early voting ought to be permitted, but not necessarily pushed or encouraged. I think But, you but is it more reliable, I guess, is the question of what I've been reliable. reading. I same. I think it's the same. Okay. I think the question is, though, that if you vote early, you miss the last two weeks of the debate. So sure, yeah. So I think it should be permitted. Virginia has an early voting law that you may be aware of, in which you got to go to the court, in which you go to the courthouse, and you say, "I'm not going to be there on that that day." Other states, you know, make you take a notary and say, "I, I promise, I'm going to be in the emergency room on election day." So I think it's it's across the board. People though, voting is good. Anything that encourages more voting is better than anything that discourages it. So if early voting can cause more people to vote. One state, I think it's Oregon, you can only vote early. You, you vote by mail, and I think that's the wrong way to do it, just because you have a lot of possibility of sort of family coercion. You know, Aunt Tilly comes over and fills out your ballot for you. And we saw the photographs of these ballots that were obviously fake, and they're being dumped in the ballot box. And that's where I go back to what's the percentage of voter irregularity compared to, okay, let's just say it's across the board bell curve. Both groups do it to some degree. That doesn't make me feel any better, Steve. <laughs> no, I'm here to you. I have tracked down some of those things that say, well, this is, and they've all sort of proven, because they were all tested in court, and none of them have proven to be actual causes of fraud. So I've looked at the same set of facts. And, and facts are the facts. It's not the photos are the facts. But I guess that's part of the reason for the debate. It's also part of the reason for the anger. Sure. It might be fraudulent because... You're a Democrat, and so you're you're going to be fraudulent. Yeah. 
Well, and that's always the pushback with the IDs is you're going to discriminate against a certain sector of the population. I'm like, well, if you travel, run a car, have a bank account, get SNAP, you know, anything, you got to show an ID. I think motor ID, photo ID is the right, right thing. You got to make it easy to get the ID. And some 100%, people don't, but it, five, don't five buck fee the state absorbs per person that doesn't have it. What are you talking about? Percentage of population, single percentage? I was a poll watcher in Texas back, yeah. especially in South Texas, back when we had real corruption. We had some in Dallas County also, but most of it has been pushed out. But we did have some some real corruption. We had a, a an election judge who went to jail for fraudulently voting 70 uh, ballots, almost the uh, Duke of Duval, Box 13. She voted them in alphabetical order. <laughs> Yikes. And that was in 1978, okay? But she was caught and she went to jail. I was a poll watcher four, three times in my life. And I remember the first time I was a poll watcher for, as a Republican for a Spanish-speaking precinct. And so, yeah, they spoke English, too. So I was there with the election judge and the clerks, and we'd have nice conversations. And at one point, this election clerk's husband comes in, and they start speaking in Spanish. And I was there because I could theoretically speak a little bit of Spanish, but they were going so fast in so many different directions, yeah. I had no idea what they were saying. So I just looked confused. And suddenly the election judge looked at me and said, oh, 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 we're sorry. We'll speak in English now. I'm sorry. We weren't talking about the election. <laughs> Her husband just won the numbers lottery from the mafia, from the local mafia last night, and they have a thousand bucks. I said, oh, well, it's nothing illegal then. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> a different issue that's illegal, right? Oh, goodness. But okay. My experience has always been that the election judges, local election judges, there are some exceptions, but by and large, they are really there as public servants and they try to get it right. Okay. Let's land this plane. Give the believer in Christ, give the American Christian some hope, Steve. Well, the hope is in your own heart and your own actions. So if you want change, you have to decide the change that you want and then set out to start with. It was St. Thomas has said, if you want to do good for all, start with whoever's closest to you and work out from there. And then further and further and further. So start with whoever's closest to you. Think about what you want to accomplish and then work out from there. If we are able to have a political system that nominates and elects people to office, especially president that are much more sensitive to the total body politic that will listen to the other side, I think the country will do well. But as I said earlier, I think there's a risk that we won't. And I'm an optimist, but I think there's a risk here. It's not without risk. But it does take a Christian heart to listen to our fellow citizens and see what they think. Honorable Steve Bartlett, we have information about him, as always, in the show notes. An article he wrote called The Purpose of Power. It's a few years old, but I would encourage you to take a look at it. And also, We'll have a couple of links to no labels. You may have seen that bouncing around a little bit. So we'll let Steve give us some links that he likes so you can learn about what no labels is and is not. It's great to see your face. It's great to talk to you always. I always learn from you and give your wonderful wife, Gail, a big hug from Cindy and Michael, would you? Cindy and also into the world's greatest pastor. <laughs> Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.